Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Uh, so I'll be doing the Bible readings as well today. So we've got three. The first one is from Genesis chapter 12, and it's from verse 1 to 3. So Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the second reading is from Micah chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. And then the third reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. When they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, um, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
Thanks very much for reading, Izzy. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon, uh, lead pastor here at City Light Church in North Adelaide. If you hear people talking about a person named Jacko, that's me. Uh, so if anyone says, talk to Jacko, they're probably talking about me. Anyway, um, it's really good to see you uh, here this morning, especially if you're visiting uh, here for the first time. Really good to have you with us. Um, so I'd share. I've been uh, in Melbourne for the past few days, um, partly at a conference. The conference was really just an excuse to catch up with two good mates uh, who I've served with in Christian mission ministry over uh, time. Um, so we you know, just went to the conference as an excuse to kind of get together and hang out in Melbourne, being hipsters for a few days, drinking too many short blacks and magics and things like that, um, but it was, uh, it was a good time. Um, I was there at the Gospel Coalition Australia conference, uh, people might know of the Gospel Coalition, um, and uh, yeah, it was just, you know, uh, it was good to be in a room full of people from right across our country who long to see the gospel go to the edges of our great country um, to be encouraged there. Um, yeah, good to rekindle old friendships and just be inspired um, through prayer to see the gospel going out and people giving their lives to that work. Um, I like Melbourne, I like hanging out with Christian brothers and sisters from all over the world, but I like you the most. Um, I really love you guys, um, and uh, this, is, um, this is one of my happy places, to be honest. Um, a happy place is to be here in this building with you guys around God's word and the power of the spirit. Um, teaching the word of God is one of my happy places as well. Um, so it's good to be back, um, even though I wasn't gone for that long. There you go. Um, I want you to turn to the person next to you. Um, I don't know, as you heard Izzy reading those Bible readings, Micah chapter 5 and then Matthew chapter 2, maybe you thought, what's going on? Christmas hasn't come yet. Um, they sound like Bible readings we do in December, you know, around the 24th or 5th or something like that. I don't know about you as well, but I've, you know, I've been hanging around Coles and Target and places like that, and the Christmas trees are coming out, Bunnings, you can go and buy all your you know, waving Santas and things like that for your front yard. Turn to the person next to you, and do you think it's a bit early? Do you think it's a bit early? Have a chat about that. Is it too early for mince pies, waving Santas, and Christmas trees? Have a quick chat about that with your person next to you, and we'll be back in 60 seconds. Go for it. Go for it. It's that section, isn't it, right, where you walk past the, like at least at Churchill, where you walk past the cash registers and it's just where they put all that, like, yeah. new season stuff. And there's lights everywhere and, yeah, dancing Santas and the works, yeah. Yeah.
All righty, I'll get you to come back together. A uh, quick straw poll. Who thinks it's totally cool and it should have happened earlier that the Christmas stuff comes out? No one. Oh, Jackie, you think it should have been earlier? Yeah, right, you like mince pies? <laughs> who's, who's against it? Who thinks, no, it's too early? Like almost everyone. Particularly, I, I don't know, for anyone you know, from North America in the house, well, I think people from North America think it's just ridiculous that it's, you know, Thanksgiving has to come first, right? Is that right? And then we can get on to... And it's hot. Yeah, it's wrong. Yeah, it's just the wrong time of the year. Yeah, there you go. Um, Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who speaks. Father, you've spoken in many and varied ways throughout history. And we thank you and praise you that you have spoken definitively and powerfully and wonderfully through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray as we gather around your word in the power of the Spirit, we pray that we would see Jesus. We pray that we would hear Jesus. We pray that we would love Jesus. Father, for any of those things to happen, we need your help. We need your spirit. And so we ask that your spirit would point us to Jesus. Strengthen our hearts. And Father, we pray that we would leave here more captured by the Lord Jesus and his mission, more overwhelmed by his grace and mercy, that being captured by those things, you would send us out into a needy city, into needy workplaces and homes, into a needy world. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen. I want you to imagine for a minute, there's a picture coming up on the screen, what it might be like to live in a besieged city? What would it be like to live in a city under siege? When I was doing history back at school, I remember sieges were kind of the things that would happen in the past, right? You'd study the sieges of the past, I don't know, the medieval days. But in today's world, we know, or some people know all about what it's like to live in a besieged city. We could ask friends from Syria, we could ask friends from Iraq or more recent sieges in Homs, Aleppo, and right now in cities across the nation of Ukraine. What would it feel like if you were there? We see images on the screen, we see images on TV, we see images across social media. The enemy is all around, there's shelling, there's bombings, there's skirmishes, and at times it feels like I'm sure there's no way out. Food and water and energy supplies become scarce and as a result, disease creeps in. You're faced with the reality of injured, sick and dying children and also not to mention millions of people fleeing as refugees looking for safety and security elsewhere. I think if you're living in a besieged city, you'd be angry, you'd be afraid, perhaps even now and then you'd give in to despair. 
But maybe you'd also have some hope. Besiege cities. I raise this because that's where our study in the book of Micah begins today. Micah chapter 5 verse 1. If you haven't got it open, you might want to turn back there with me. Uh, Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 5 verse 1 begins with a siege. Uh, Marshal your troops now, city of troops. For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. We're working through the book of the prophet, the minor prophets, the, the 12 minor prophets, books we don't read. And we're pretty familiar, right, that um, here we find ourselves in this particular book of Micah. We're in the land of Israel, a small kingdom of Judah, and we're back in the 8th century before Christ. And the text begins with an attack that's coming from the nation of Assyria, the great superpower of the day in the 8th century BC. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 5, we meet the Assyrians. Chapter 5, verse 5, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. And they did that on more than one occasion during these times. The irony is, actually, that the empire of Assyria in biblical times is precisely where, a little while ago, ISIS was based in our world. The northern part of Iraq and Syria. And they were equally feared. The Assyrians were a notoriously brutal empire. They ruled by fear, they ruled by fear and vicious violence. And they were quite accustomed to impaling people, dismembering people. It was an evil world then, as it is indeed an evil world today. And here in this chapter, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, God's chosen people, are facing that very threat. What possible hope could there be for these people? Well, God actually reminds his people that he's got everything under control. But from the most unexpected place you could imagine. The Lord says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that he's going to a place called Bethlehem. Have a look on the screen. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? It sounds, again, like I said at the beginning, like Christmas. This is the verse we often roll out at, I don't know, Christmas carols or Christmas services, turns up in nativity plays, and I think most people on the streets, maybe most people on the streets, if you walk down O'Connell Street and ask them, I don't know, like a Vox Pop, where, did, where was Jesus born? I think a fair few people will be able to say Bethlehem. Maybe that's decreasing these days, I don't know. We could do it after church today, we could go and do a little Vox Pop. Sounds familiar, but so today as we look at Micah and our series, Books We Don't Read, I want to take us on two trips. I want to take us on two journeys in our text today. And the first journey is this one, from Micah to Matthew. That's our first trip. Two trips today, first trip from Micah to Matthew. We're going to start our journey in Micah, in this world of of war and of threat of the Assyrians breathing down the necks of God's people. And God says that he'll find an answer to this threat, to this problem, in Bethlehem. Where? Well, exactly. Bethlehem, it's such a tiny 
backwater place that people didn't even know where Bethlehem even kind of was back in the day. So much so that you had to tell people, oh, Bethlehem, it's near a place called Ephrat. That's why we have here, that's why it says, we have, that's why we have Bethlehem Ephrathah. You know, it's Bethlehem that you go through on the way to Ephrat. You know, it was an insignificant, unimportant sort of place. And God says it's from that insignificant backwater, no one really knows where it's from kind of place where God says, that's where I'm going to bring my ruler from. It's so typical of the God of the Bible, isn't it? Think back to all the Old Testament stories we have. When God called Gideon to be the deliverer for his people hundreds of years earlier, Gideon says, like, why me? Like, I'm the least of my family, and my family is the least of the clans of all my tribe. When God called Saul, exactly the same thing, the least of all his people. And many will recall, you'll recall David, right? The anointing of David. What does Samuel do? Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and says to Samuel, got any sons? So they sort of bring the sons out. I don't know, there's some macho ones. I don't know, some pump and iron. Like, they come. Samuel says to Jesse, got any more? Oh, yeah, I've got one more. He's like out in the paddock. He's, he's a bit scrawny, looking after the sheep. You know, don't, don't. His, his name's David, but don't worry about David. David was the youngest and most insignificant sons of Jesse. And yet... It's from the least where God will find a ruler for his people. God works his loftiest plans through the lowliest of means. And as a kind of aside on the way through, as we look at Micah this morning, I think that ought to be a real encouragement to us who feel small and insignificant in a big world, in a godless environment. I find that really encouraging where we can feel small and insignificant and weak and powerless in our workplaces, on our university campuses, or just out there in the world in general. God says, I know all about being small. I've been there. So God says, from Bethlehem I will bring my ruler, or literally, out of you will come for me a ruler. That's interesting, isn't it? It's not what we'd expect. I think we would expect it to say, I will bring a ruler for you, Israel. I mean, they're the ones who are in trouble, right? They're the ones who needed it. But God says, yes, I'm going to bring a ruler for me. This will be someone who'll do God's will, who'll fulfill God's purposes and plans. Out of you, little, insignificant, hard to find Bethlehem, I'm going to find a ruler for me. And indeed, This ruler to come, Micah says, he will do it all in the God's power and for God's name and glory. See verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock, probably an allusion back to David, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So this ruler will not only come for God, but will come from God. End of the verse two, his origins are from old, from ancient times. Now this could be a reference to the fact that this ruler will be descended from David, right? David was 400 years prior to this moment. It's pretty ancient, isn't it? 400 years. 
But this phrase from ancient times is actually about the living, is mentioned, is actually used to describe the living God heaps of times in the Old Testament. So it's saying someone will come from the ancient past, but also the eternal past from God Himself. Not only will he come from the past, but he will come in the future because in verse 3 the prophet says, Israel will be abandoned or given up until the time when she who is, born, who is in labor bears a son. Israel will go through a time where they feel like they've been abandoned by God as they did for several hundred years until the time when a mother will give birth to a son, echoing here the promise we find also in the book of Isaiah. But what will this ruler do when God brings him from Bethlehem? Just briefly, three things that this ruler will do when God raises him up from Bethlehem. Firstly, he'll bring unity. The rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. God will bring his people together again after they've been scattered and divided. He'll bring unity Secondly, this ruler will bring security. Um, See there in the middle of verse four, they will live securely. God's people will find safety when they are ruled by this king. Unity, security, and finally, he'll bring peace. The words that open verse five, literally, this will be peace. He will be our peace. Even in the midst of terrifying invasion, siege, suffering, and death. Even there, in the midst of those things, God's people can experience peace. Here's Micah's vision in chapter 5. It's a little mysterious, it's a little bit veiled. But what it clearly affirms that in the context of God's people besieged by Assyria, God has things under control. He is sovereign. And he will raise up a ruler from the most unlikely place, the little town of Bethlehem. Insignificant, backwater, a nowhere place. But out of there will come one whose greatness, the opposite of leastness, whose greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. How are you tracking? Going okay with me? I feel like I'm Mark Chandler, Matthew Chandler. Tracking with me? You tracking with me? Flip forward then with me, if you're with me. Come forward with me to Matthew's Gospel. So, boom, beginning of the New Testament. You'll hit Matthew, the first Gospel. Matthew's Gospel. When you flip forward to Matthew chapter 2, which was our Bible reading from Matthew this morning, um, you, you find some people, right, who've come from the ends of the earth to glimpse the greatness of the ruler of God's people. So we're looking at Matthew chapter two where we read these really familiar words where Micah's vision 800 years beforehand is actually fulfilled. Matthew sees Micah's words fulfilled in a little house in a little town called Bethlehem where there was a little toddler probably at this time of life about two years old And this little toddler living in this little house in Bethlehem is also living in a world under siege, just as violent, just as oppressive as Micah's day. And perhaps just as violent and oppressive as the world in which we live today. Because even back then, right, Bethlehem was under military occupation. 
just as it was when the Assyrians invaded Judah and captured many towns. When Jesus came to this region, he was a region occupied by the Romans. And it still is occupied today, the occupied West Bank. But there in Bethlehem, on one day, some pretty strange-looking men turned up at the door of this little house. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says they were called Magi, which is a kind of a title for someone who's like an astrologer or a stargazer with a whole lot of like, you know, foretelling sort of mixed into it. Um, science, astronomy, and foretellers. And, and they come from the east, which may mean Arabia, but probably means Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. The Magi turn up, and Matthew tells us they found a house where Jesus was, and why, they were what? Overjoyed. And they brought him gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And they worshipped this little fella. After a two-year search, I say two years because I think in verses one to six, we sort of track a two-year period by the time they sort of arrived and then found him. God had revealed himself to them where they were already looking. So these magi, right, they're already looking where God revealed to where he was going to be. So these are astrologers, right? They're looking up at the stars. It was their day job, probably more like their night job, right? But... Um, but they were looking at the stars and God who created the stars gave them a sign in their language that they could understand. The message, a king has been born. They worked out that this king had been born in the land of the Jews, so they went to a place called Jerusalem. Where is this guy? Where is the one born king of the Jews? And God reveals more to them, not from the stars this time, but through the scriptures as Herod calls for the teachers and the scribes. And they come, I don't know, they come in with all their scrolls. Well, the king, they say, the Messiah, he is to be born in Bethlehem. And so they quote the prophecy of Micah 800 years before. So what's Matthew trying to tell us in this really familiar story? Well, he's saying, here is the one Micah talked about. Here is God's ruler, born to fulfill God's promises born to rule to the ends of the earth. It's interesting, though, what happens to him in this moment. Three things happen to this king born to rule the ends of the earth. Firstly, he's rejected and hated by the political powers of the day, namely Herod. Hates him. We know a bit about Herod. He was a usurped, king of the Jews. Uh, he certainly was not born to be the king of the Jews. Herod also he was a paranoid king. He'd already killed several of his family members because he was worried they were plotting against him, so he wanted to get rid of them. Um, I'm told Emperor Augustus said that he'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. It says a lot. He was a violent and ruthless person, and he was not about to have his power threatened by this little toddler born in, where'd you say it again? Bethlehem. Herod was not averse to slaughtering a few children in his rage. And how little the world has changed in the past recent times. 
So Jesus was rejected just as he is today. Secondly, and kind of surprisingly, Jesus was totally ignored by the religious leaders. It amazes me. As you read Matthew's stories, this, sorry, this, these religious leaders who gave their whole lives to studying the scriptures and examining and thinking about the promises of God, they find the right scripture in the prophecy of Micah they hear that it's been fulfilled. The long-promised king of the world has come. And what do they do? They go back to their day jobs. They go back to their desks. They go back to their theologizing. They go back to their temple activity, whatever they kind of got up to. It's astonishing, the apathy and the indifference. Just as we see today, Jesus, take him or leave him. How about us? He's hated by Herod. He's ignored by the religious leaders. But thirdly, he's sought out and he's worshipped by foreigners from the east, from the ends of the earth. And why not? Because after all, Jesus comes into this story as the fulfillment of God's plans and his promises. God's promise that he made way back at the beginning of the Bible to a man named Abram, where he said, through you, Abraham, through you and your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And some of the Psalms celebrate this as well, right? Here's one of the Psalms celebrating that through this ruler, through this king, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Here's one of the Psalms. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. And that's precisely what these men from the ends of the earth, these magi have come to do. They've come from the ends of the earth to bow down to worship before the Lord. Does anyone know what psalm that verse is from? That was verse 27 of Psalm 22. A psalm that has as its first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew, later in his gospel, will recall that this little toddler in chapter two will say those very words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hangs on a Roman cross to take upon himself the sins of the whole world to die the death that we deserved for our rebellion and our rejection against the living God. Not only is this a ruler who will bring peace and unity and security, he's a ruler who lays down his life. But then Matthew will show us, I love this, Matthew shows us, I love Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew shows us that at the end of his gospel, this Jesus whom the world crucified, this Jesus who laid down his life for sinners, this Jesus who was crucified for the sins of the whole world, God raised him from the dead. Amen? And the closing picture of Matthew's gospel is that the risen Jesus is standing on a mountaintop and he declares these words, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you to the end of the age. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the universe, Jesus is Lord. His greatness, his rule will reach the ends of the earth. He is the one whom God called in Bethlehem the least of all places, to ultimately be the one whose greatness would spread to the ends of the earth. I love it. God works his loftiest plans through the lowliest of means. It's wonderful. Well, I've said we'd do two journeys today. We've gone from Micah to Matthew. Just briefly, let me take you on the second one. I've called this one Bethlehem to Bedlam. There you go. Bethlehem to Bedlam. Um, Bedlam, interestingly, in the English language, comes from the same name Bethlehem, actually, um, interestingly. Um, There was a hospital in London in the 1200s called Bethlehem Hospital. Uh, It was a hospital, and then it became a hospital for those who struggle with mental illness. Um, And we're talking like a long time ago. Uh, It's a time in, in history where our understanding and our compassion towards those who have mental illness is very different, or was very different. Um, ideally, this Bethlehem Hospital was a place which was designed to help those who were um, mentally unwell, but it very much became a place where Londoners would go and sort of gawk at and look upon those who were struggling with illness. And it became affectionately known as Bedlam. And the word Bedlam that arose from Bethlehem at least in my mind, is used to describe that idea of chaos and suffering and madness and things kind of out of control. I think bedlam is probably not a bad word to describe our world today, 2022, a crazy year. And so the thought occurred to me as I began to work on this talk, in what possible way, in a, in a world which is kind of, is in Bedlam, is, is Bedlam, how, in what possible way can we say that Christ is ruler of this world when we see the world in the state that it is today? How can we see the kingdom of God? How can we see the reign and rule of Jesus in the Bedlam of our world? Just this week, I was reminded of the situation in the Middle East. How, how do we see the reign of Christ in the Middle East? I don't know if you know this, but since the middle of the last decade, the Christian population in the Middle East has been decimated. For hundreds of years, it was a very substantial population of people who would name the Lord Jesus as their Lord and King. And now it's been simply decimated. Brothers and sisters in Christ driven out. Surely as we look at that and what's happening to God's people in that part of the world, we have to ask, is Christ being defeated? Is Christ really ruling? Um, I wrote an email to a friend of mine who is an Arab Christian pastor working in Lebanon. And I asked him, you know, in the midst of such awful things that are happening in the Middle East, do you think we'll be able to look back in, say, 50 years' time and see God do, like, some amazing work through that kind of suffering and pain and decimation? I sort of alluded to the fact that, you know, 50 or 60 years ago in China, there was a, you know, the Communist Party came in, there was a crackdown on Christianity and Christian missionaries were driven out of that country. 
And people were wondering, what's going to happen to the gospel in the nation of China? Well, the fact is that there's probably been more people in China meeting in churches across that country than there have been in Australia and all across Europe combined already. Did God not abandon that country? No, he didn't. So I suggested to my Arab following Jesus friend and pastor what he thought. This is what he wrote back. Let me quote him. I believe that we as Arab Christians, we do not need to wait 50 years or so to see that God is at work. What is actually taking place in the Middle East and Africa in the midst of the tragedy since the so-called Arab Spring is really beyond belief. Let me share with you some examples, he said. There has never been, he said, a serious attempt to reach out to Muslims who live in the strict and fundamentalist areas of Syria. That was impossible for Syrian Christians due to many religious and political factors. But now, with over one million refugees, most of them coming from the same areas, the church in Lebanon has been able to reach out to them with the gospel message. Not long ago, he said, I preached at a church where 80% of the audience was Muslim. And perhaps 30% of them have already committed their life to Jesus. A mother of six who was a graduate of Damascus University and is now a refugee in Lebanon said to my wife, the most amazing thing that happened to us was not escaping destruction and death in Jerba, but finding the Messiah who changed our minds and our hearts. He goes on, the evangelical church in Syria was known to be in constant competition and division, but for the first time in over a hundred years, the evangelical churches are coming together to pray and to fast and to serve. Your brothers gathering together, said the Lord through Micah. Of course, he says, there are terrible tragedies taking place in the Middle East. You see and hear about it every day on the media. But here, a story, but here is a story not told in the news media. There is a God at work in the middle of all the tragedies. Churches are being transformed by the dreadful situation around them, moving from survival mode to a community of God's people that is loud and a clear prophetic voice. Churches are discovering how to be agents of hope in the middle of hopelessness all around them, agents of, agents of reconciliation in the face of the violence. There are stories of people, he said, from all kinds of backgrounds encountering the gospel for the very first time in their lives through church communities caring for them holistically. What we don't hear, he said, is churches seeing themselves as victims. The church in the Middle East is not the victim. On the contrary, the church has the privilege. Hear that? The privilege of being a much needed light in the darkness. The church in the Middle East is being persecuted, sure. Churches are being targeted, but that's not a reason to give up or run away. He said this, this is wonderful. As the Christians and the church are being increasingly marginalized, we're discovering how the gospel works much better from the margins. As Christians and the church are progressively losing power, we are discovering that the call of Jesus works best through powerlessness, not to be confused with weakness. The church is not weak, but its source of power is very different from what one would expect. 
The power of the gospel does not come from numbers or wealth or earthly authority. No, it comes from Jesus himself through the Holy Spirit. The church is being transformed in our region as we, as, as we wrestle with what it means to carry on ministry from the margin through powerlessness. Isn't that where Bethlehem was? Isn't that precisely what Micah is saying? God says, I'll use the powerless, I'll use the weak, I'll use the marginalised, and from there, you'll see what I will do. God says, I use the lowliest of means from the loftiest of plans. God is still at work. He is still at work advancing his kingdom. That's in the Middle East, and and not to dwell on this too much, but much, much, much closer to home. You'll be aware that in the last week or so, there was the incident between Andrew Thorburn and the Essendon Football Club. Andrew Thorburn, former CEO of the National Australia Bank, was then appointed uh, the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, the club that he loved and was super excited to serve. But within 24 hours, he'd stepped out of that role because he also is the chairman of the City on a Hill um, Church Network, of which we here at City Light Church North Adelaide are connected to as another Acts 29 church. And it just came to a head that the, the values that the Essendon Football Club holds dear could have really clashed up against pretty hard the values of the Christian gospel and the church that he was chairman of. And so he had an ultimatum, right? He had the ultimatum, you know, sort of renounce those things or continue on. And so he stepped out of his role as Essendon CEO. And you've probably followed all the hullabaloo that's come as a result of that. Without going into detail, as a church, City on a Hill, um, through, since that time, has done various things to respond to that and to clarify their position on things, etc., etc. Um, Guy Mason, the pastor of Sydney on a Hill, was preaching last Sunday, sort of at the tail end of the, the big week that they'd had, and he preached on 1 Corinthians 15, a good word to remind us that at the heart of all that we do and all that we are as God's people is the, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But at the end, you know, amidst all the, all the toings and froings and all the words that were shared by leaders in Melbourne and, and all the the heat that City on a Hill and others were facing. Um, Guy shared that that week, during that week, through one of their ministries that they run where they connect members of their church with older folk living in nursing homes, he shared that a, a man named Derek that week who'd been involved in it, like a guy in their church had been meeting with Derek for a long time. A man named Derek put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. He was 86 or something like that and he'd come to faith in Jesus. In the midst of the threats and the storm and the hostility and the siege of the media, God was still at work in the most unexpected places. Bringing an elderly man to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. God is still at work. He is still at work. His kingdom is advancing. 
Please don't misunderstand me as we've reflected on what my friend from Lebanon shared. I'm not suggesting that what's happening in the Middle East and other parts of the world is somehow good or that somehow the way our society is intolerant of various views is somehow good. I'm not saying that. Just as much as I, could possibly, I couldn't possibly say that what Herod did was good or what the Assyrians did to God's people was good. I can't say that. But what I'm saying is that out of the mess, out of the horror, in the midst of the bedlam, we believe that God from a lowly, despised place would bring one to rule and who will be worshipped from the ends of the earth. You know, brothers and sisters, this series we're in called Books We Don't Read, I've I've imagined this to be like an Advent series, like an extended Advent series as we sort of build our way back to Christmas, you know, anticipating and remembering the first coming of God in the flesh to our earth. And what we see today is that just as the one who came at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago came because God promised he would, so we believe that he will come again because God promised that he will. And he will come in glory and every eye will see him and every knee will bow, including the Herods of this world. But those who are wise will come to him first, worship him now, trust him and obey him because he is the king. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we started our time together in your word by thanking you for your word. And now we have even more reason to give you thanks because it brings to us this assurance that in the midst of a world that brings us so much pain and horror, that ultimately you are still the ruler of the kings of the earth. Lord, it's hard for us to see that and to believe it. But Father, we do want to tell you this morning that we do believe it. And we want to live in its light. Father, we thank you that through the lowliest of means you work your lofty plans. We praise you, Lord, this morning for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, standing firm in their faith in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that on the margins of society there, you are using them to bring much glory to your name, but also we thank you for the way that you're rescuing people from all parts of that part of the world. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful story of Derek who put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ just last week in the midst of the storm that was happening in Melbourne and City on a Hill and all those things, thank you, Father, that in the midst of that mess, you were still at work, opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears and softening hard hearts. And so, Father, we put our trust in you this morning and we ask you to keep, to keep using us. And, Father, to keep those who are suffering in our world, keep them faithful. We thank you, Father, this morning for all that you're doing in the world. Father, do give us eyes of faith to see and to believe. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.